Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of the Girls Code Lincoln podcast. Girls Code Lincoln is a community organization in Lincoln, Nebraska that focuses on teaching fourth through ninth grade girls coding and confidence through free weekly clubs, as well as public events to promote technology literacy across the community. I'm one of your hosts, Elsbeth Magilton, and I am the board president for Girls Code Lincoln. With me is my co-host, one of the Girls Code Lincoln founders, former president, and still director of operations, which means that she's one of the critical masterminds behind our clubs. Welcome, Ockerty. Hello. I'm so thrilled to be here and kick this off with you, Elsbeth. We're so happy to have you here and to be launching the first ever episode And listener, we are so excited that you're here to join us today too. Uh, We know you have millions of options when it comes to awesome audio content out there from podcasts to books. And we appreciate that you're here with our community organization dedicated to teaching girls. On this episode and on all of our episodes, we will have two distinct segments. In the first, we will explore a historical woman in coding, reaching as far back as, of course, our favorite Ada Lovelace, who we'll be talking about today, and throughout history as we talk about other women who have contributed massively to society through coding. In our second segment, we'll interview women that are either from Nebraska or have had an impact within the tech sector in Nebraska. There are so many amazing women across the world who are doing great work and deserve recognition. But we think it's important for our young girls in Nebraska and the Midwest to see that there's space for them here and that this sort of education and work is happening all over the country, not just on the coast. Today, we'll be interviewing Dr. Benita Sheriff, who is not only on the Girls Code Lincoln board and serves as our treasurer, but is an associate professor in the School of Computing at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. In these first couple episodes, you'll be primarily hearing from myself and Akriti, but we hope as soon as we get our feet under ourselves in producing these episodes and our girls get a little bit further into their club for this academic year, to bring some of their voices here to you to teach you a little bit more about these women and interview the women in our community. So with that, let's jump right in. One, two, three, four. All right. On today's episode, we are covering probably one of the most notable or well-known women in STEM that most people have heard of. She's sort of known as the first computer programmer, Augusta Ada Lovelace, who was born in 1815, primarily known as Ada. Uh, Her parents were Annabella Milbank and the poet Lord Byron. And I have to admit, I did not know that gem that Lord Byron was her father. Um, famous, you know, historical figure and poet. Um, And so he was this really artistic, romantic poet. And then her mother, Lady Byron, had this mathematical training. And she insisted that Ada study mathematics, which was pretty unusual back in the 18 teens, right? It was also rumored that her mother attempted to keep her somewhat away from her father's creative world of poetry and wanted to sort of shield her from the arts and really put this big focus on mathematics. So fast forward a little bit to 1833 and Ada has her coming out party, which at the time meant that she was open in the, in the London social scene for courting and marriage proposals from people, uh, from men in London. Right. So at this party, she meets this guy named Charles Babbage. And at this party, he explains and demonstrates the small working segment of his analytical engine. The analytical engine, which is generally considered the first computer, was designed and partly built by Charles Babbage. He actually worked on it until he died in 1871. The analytical engine was to be a general purpose, fully program controlled, automatic mechanical digital computer. 
it would be able to perform any calculation set before it. There's no evidence that anyone before Babbage had ever conceived of a device like this, let alone attempted to build one. So this was really the first of its kind. The machine was designed to consist of four components, the mill, the store, the reader, and the printer. And these components are the essential components in really any computer today. The mill was what calculated the mathematics in it. It was analogous to the central processing unit, the CPU, in a modern computer. The store was where the data was held prior to processing, exactly like the memory and storage in today's computers. And the reader and the printer were the input and output devices. So Ada was hooked. I mean, just fascinated by this machine. Um, Loved talking to Babbage and learning all about this, right? So as he continues to work on his engine and, and build this out, he and Ada become a sort of pen pal, right? And they start discussing the project and about mathematics generally. Eventually, Ada translates an article that an Italian engineer, Luigi Membrea, wrote about the machine, right? And his was written in French. And the original article is around 8,000 words talking about this machine. And it's sort of the first publication about um, this analytical machine and what it can do. Well, Ada translates this and writes hers. And now the article is 20,000 words. Her notes included the first published description of a stepwise sequence of operations for solving certain mathematical problems. And this is why Ada is referred to as the first programmer. Interestingly, she uses the textile loom as an example. Joseph Marie Jacquard's silk weaving machine could automatically create images using a chain of punched cards. So too could Babbage's system. The engine, Lovelace explained, weaved algebraic patterns using a punch card system. But all of this was not without some drama, which is fantastic for our storytelling today, but maybe not so much in Ada's life, right? Her collaboration with Babbage was close and biographers really debate the extent and the originality of her contribution. Um, So importantly, though, the article contains statements by Ada that from a modern perspective are visionary. So whether she was really a part of creating the machine or just had a vision of how to use it differently, her comments are really important. She speculated that the engine might act upon other things besides numbers, that the engine might compose elaborate and scientific pieces of music of any degree of complexity or extent. The idea of a machine that could manipulate symbols in accordance with rules, that numbers could represent entities other than quantity, marked the fundamental transition from calculation to computation. And it was amazing for the time. So it was so amazing that in the late 1970s, the Department of Defense developed a software language that they actually called ADA, one that brought together a number of different programming languages. And since 2009, she has been recognized annually every October to highlight the often overlooked contribution of women in math and science. So that is our quick rundown on the mother of programming, our first computer programmer, man or woman, um, and her contribution to science. Hello, listener. My name is Lysander Marquez, and I'm the technical producer of this show. Interested in supporting or getting involved with Girls Code Lincoln? How about volunteering to teach or assist during our weekly clubs? 
You don't need to be a girl or know how to code in order to help out. Go to girlscodelincoln.org and click on Get Involved to learn more about volunteer opportunities or click on the Donate button to support our mission and ability to keep providing these opportunities in our community. And now, back to this episode of the Girls Code Lincoln podcast. Welcome back to the Girls Code Lincoln podcast, and, and thanks for joining us. We have a new person here with us, Benita, Dr. Sheriff. She is an associate professor at the School of Computing at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. She received her PhD in 2010 and her master's in 2003 in computer science, specializing in software engineering from Kent State University, and her bachelor's of science in computer science from Cypress College in Nicosia, Cyprus. Her research interests are eye tracking related to software engineering, empirical software engineering, emotional awareness, software traceability, and software visualization to support maintenance of large systems. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Elspeth, for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We are so excited you're here, Benita. Would you start off by telling us a little bit about who you are and what got you into this field? Yes. So right now I am an associate professor in this newly formed School of Computing at UNL. Uh, I direct a research lab here, the Software Engineering Research and Empirical Studies Lab. I advise graduate students and undergraduate students in teams doing research projects. I also teach computer science courses and software engineering courses. And then I'm also involved in some service uh, in the community as well as in the university and my professional field. So one of our goals in these interviews is to give all of our listeners a wonderful picture of everyone's lives that led them to what they're doing now, which I think helps people see themselves in these types of jobs. So we're going to kick it way back to childhood and start with where are you from and tell us a little bit about how you were raised. Yes. So I am originally from Mumbai, India. I lived there for 17 years of my life. I went to high school um, there. And then once I finished high school, I uh, wanted to study uh, computer science. And a friend of my dad knew somebody who was studying in, in Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean. Some people ask me, is this a state in the US? I'm like, no, 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 it's, it's an island in the Mediterranean. Uh, so I moved there and I did my undergraduate degree in, in Nicosia, Cyprus, the capital. Cyprus is a divided country, so I was on the Greek side of it. Uh, and I stayed there for about three and a half years. So pretty much I, I grew up in India, but then I moved to, to do my uh, undergrad degree in, in Europe, pretty much, uh, after which I decided to pursue grad school in the U.S. So what drew you initially to choose computer science? Yes, yeah, so... Um, I don't have anybody doing computer science in my family. So it was just, I'm first generation. No one codes in my family. Uh, I've seen my dad growing up using computers in, for his job. And so I always was intrigued as to how they did what they did. Uh, you know, and I would ask my dad all the time, like, how does it know all this information? And he would be like, oh, you just feed it in. But I was like, how do you feed it in? And he would say, okay, we need to get you into computer science. I think that's something that would be interesting to you. So I start, I remember actually looking through these uh, college manuals to see, okay, what does it involve? Like, I didn't know what computer science really was. So I was looking at these college um, course uh, schedules and co course uh, catalogs, and I, it made no sense to me. But I remember uh, 
till today, as a teenager, uh, I was fascinated by movies, animated movies. Till today, this is my favorite thing to watch and computer games. My dream as a teenager was to work at Pixar, actually, and make animations like you see now Frozen. Frozen is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, well, fast forward a few years, the Pixar thing didn't really pan out. But in the process, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed what I was learning when I it was in, in undergrad. And so I just stuck with it. I was like, this makes sense. This is a lot of fun. You know, and, and to think of it now, like we all know the word really runs on software, right? So just thinking about how much impact we can make in the world just by coding, the skill of building and developing and designing software. When I think about it, it's really quite humbling. Right. So uh, how much impact we can make just as as developers. So, yeah. So I didn't start up wanting to be in tech, but I'm so glad I did stick with it. And because I honestly love what I do. I love that story. And I love I love what you said about how humbling it is to be a part of something that can so broadly have this massive impact on society and how cool that is. I also was wondering I'm a, my family makes fun of me for how much I love cartoons and love animation. And, you know, girls code had a lecture series this summer. We had someone from DreamWorks who talked about her experience as an animator. And I, we geek, my family geeked out over it. And this should be now a reoccurring question that we have, which is, is there a common thread of women in technology who maybe also are lovers of cartoons and animation I hope, I hope that is something we have in common. <laughs> I'll add to that. And that's something I have in common too. My favorite Pixar movie is Finding Nemo. And I frequently tell my boss that the day Pixar hires me as their janitor, I will quit. <laughs> I love that. Mine's brave. I have to have the Pixar's, which is not, it's a relatively unpopular opinion, I think. But something about Merida and her mom speaks to every soft part of myself and emotional being. <laughs> It's, it's the bouncy hair, I think. It is. That's it. I mean, I'd kill for that hair. <laughs> Last summer, Pixar released a, a coding platform for children called Pixar in a Box. It's a great way to learn about how Pixar animates their movies and all of the math and science that goes into it. That's awesome. What a fruitful little bird walk we just took here talking about animation. I will. I, so I encourage people to go check that out. That's awesome. And we'll stir back on course here talking about education. So where did you first learn to start coding and engineering? So I was first introduced to coding in my first CS1 class during my undergraduate degree. I have to admit, I did not understand it. I didn't know what was going on at first, uh, but I kept going to my instructor's office hours and asking him questions. And I, I'm pretty sure he was fed up with what I was I kept going all, you know, to every office hour because I had all these questions. In the end, I remember him saying, though, I, I got in the end, you know, really, I, I did really well. And he was like in front of the class telling the others, like, you know, if you persist and you come and ask me questions in my office hours, then you can, you know, you can do things like you basically you just have to work hard at it and just keep at it. There's nothing if you put in the hard work. This is what I've learned. Like if you put in the hard work, you can actually learn in the process, how to code, how to design and build these solutions. So yeah, that's when I first got introduced to my first Hello World program. And then um, through the years, just repetition and building on it really gave me more confidence that, okay, I can do this. Now let me add a little bit onto that and see what else I can do. So you said that you started off with computer science and 
I'm assuming that you finished in computer science. How did you kind of decide what area of computer science you would end up in through your college career? Yes, um, I feel that it picked me and I didn't pick it because when I was doing my master's, I was in a completely different field. I was in multimedia authoring and editing and those kinds of things. So my master's thesis is completely different from my PhD dissertation. So this is how it went. I was doing my master's. I finished up my thesis and I happened to take an advanced software engineering class in my last semester as a master's student. And the professor of the class, um, you know, basically invited me to his lab. He was a software engineering professor. He's like, you should come to my lab, Bonita. We talk about some interesting things in our lab meetings. So I went, little did I know he actually wanted to recruit me as a PhD student. <laughs> These are the tricks to recruit students. But I really liked what they were doing. And then after a couple of weeks, he's like, you know what, I think you'd be good as part of our research group and to do things uh, related to uh, software engineering research. And that actually really intrigued me because up until that point, I didn't think of actually doing software engineering. So I feel like it picked me. So and I loved what what they were doing in the lab. The people were amazing. Till today, I have you know my advisor to thank for a lot of things I have done. He's an amazing mentor. He taught me how to do research. So, yeah, that's that's how I moved, pivoted, uh, if you will, from multimedia to uh, which was again there was a gaming element there. I never really stirred away from it to software engineering and human computer interaction, which I do today. So we talked to a lot of students about practical experience that they might earn as an intern or an extern. And I know that you, it sounds like you didn't extern or intern anywhere. Can you talk a little bit more about what that experience was like and, and how you think about that sort of practical education piece? The only reason I didn't do that was because I actually didn't know that that existed. This was back in the 90s. I didn't really have anyone to look up to as a role model or even a mentor at that point in my uh, career. So I didn't really do research as an undergraduate or I didn't really, you know, intern at a company. And remember, I did this in Europe, so I could not necessarily go and work somewhere right? because there are issues with visas and things like that. So it was a very different system. So uh, yeah, I didn't. But don't get me wrong. I did not come here alone. Uh, I definitely have had a lot of mentors along the way after when I got to grad school. And so they've helped me definitely to get to where I am today. My advisor is one of them. Till today, if I have an issue, I can you know, send him a message and say, hey, what do you think about this? You know, I'm having problems with this. And he would always respond. So I have this community of people that really have been with me through the through the years, and I have learned a lot from them. So uh, from that sense, I didn't do a professional or formal internship, but um, a lot of these informal things have helped me through the process. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got from your first job to where you are now? Yes. So I, after I finished my undergraduate degree, I actually worked in industry for a while. I actually worked in the Middle East. That's what, where my dad was. So I worked in Kuwait for about a year or so, a very different environment to work in. Uh, I worked there as a Java programmer for uh, doing uh, website-based stuff. And then I was actually bored. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do something interesting. And that's when I decided, okay, I, I probably need to 
go to grad school. And, um, you know, I wa- always wanted to do research. And so I went to do my master's and then uh, got somehow um, motivated to do this PhD with my uh, advise- then advisor. After I graduated in 2010, I worked at Ohio University. I've been in Ohio for quite a long time, more than 15 years before I moved to Nebraska. But I worked at Ohio University for, for a year before I moved to a tenure track position at Youngstown State uh, University. And I was there for seven years uh, before I moved to Lincoln in 2018. So what do you do now that you've landed here at the University of Nebraska? Yeah, so that's a good question. I think about that a lot because I do wear many hats. So first of all, I want to say I am a mom of two two beautiful girls because that is also a full-time job. I'm an educator. I teach software engineering research topics, requirements engineering uh, courses in our degree program here in the School of Computing. I'm also a researcher in the area of software engineering and human-computer interaction. I do collaborate with psychology professors as well because Developers are humans, and a lot of psychology theories do fit in into how developers work. My current focus is on using eye tracking equipment to understand how coders or developers program in order to better understand the bug fixing processes and to be able to distinguish novices from experts. The more data we collect, the better this this distinguishing process can be. Right now, the current problem we are facing in our field is that we don't have enough data to actually train our models to separate novices from experts. Uh, And then as part of my service, uh, I love giving back to the community through volunteer positions, one of which is being on the board at Girls Code Lincoln. I do coding camps for the kids during the summer. I host workshops, uh, public talks for the audience to understand pieces of my research and computing in general. Uh, I I always say this, if you, you could do the best research in the world, but if you are not able to communicate it with the audience or general public, it might, it might as well not exist, right? So uh, it's very important for us as researchers, as scientists to convey our research to the general uh, public. Uh, can we get that on a billboard, please? I just love that message. And that's such a big part of what we do in my, in my day job when I'm not, when I'm not the board president of Girls Code Lincoln, thinking about the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. So this next little segment is called what is the blank part about your job? And so we want you to fill in what is the best part, hardest, scariest, and most rewarding. And we'll remind you. So let's start with what is the best part of your job? Okay. So did I say I love what I do? I think I said that already. I absolutely love my job. Uh, The best part, I mean, there are a lot of uh, good parts, but the absolute best part is being able to work with our next generation of um, citizens of our society, our students. You'd be surprised how much you can learn from students. I don't think of teaching as just a one-way, me teaching them, but I learn so much from them as well. It's really a two-way process. So just interacting with them, a lot of my courses have this discussion element um, that is uh, embedded in our activities in class. And it's amazing how much you can learn from students as well. So I would say that's the best part. That's awesome. Okay, so now switching gears. What is the hardest part? Uh, The hardest part uh, for me is uh, letting students 
uh, or allowing students to make their mistakes and having them learn, because I think that's the only way they can actually learn and remember their mistakes so they don't make it again. It's hard for me because sometimes I want to help them and show it to them right away. But then I realized that that actually they don't remember it. So, but it's hard for me because uh, I have to watch them fail. It's, you can say the same thing about being a parent, right? If you tell your kids to do something, they might not do it necessarily, but um, if they uh, fail at it, then they'll remember how to actually get it done. So the hardest part is letting students make their own mistakes and learn from them. Kind of along those same lines, what's the scariest part of your job or most intimidating? Yeah, so the scariest part also comes from the fun aspect of my job. So as part of my work, I run a lot of empirical studies. Um, And the scariest part is not knowing what to expect uh, when we start collecting data. Um, It is what it is, of course. uh, But to this date, I actually get really nervous before we deploy a study for our main data collection. Because in our studies, there are a lot of moving parts. Uh, We have biometric equipment, sometimes more than one sensor that we need to calibrate, make sure they're working correctly. Um, And so um, if one part's missing, then the entire uh, data point needs to be thrown away. So the scariest part is making sure everything works right. We do a lot of pilots to do this and document a lot of this stuff. But um, there's still that those nerves that happen before we, um, you know, push that final uh, data collection out the door. So. Now that we've talked about all of those, what is the most rewarding part? The most rewarding part, at least in the past few years for me, has been seeing our work being used by other scientists in the community. For me, everything I do is all about impact, right? There's a reason why we do the projects we are involved in in our lab. I have a vision for my lab and every project is somehow related to that vision. And so just seeing currently our eye tracking infrastructure that we have built being used by multiple universities, having emails come to me saying, okay, can you add this feature or that feature? I was like, oh my gosh, we totally can. And now we are making it available for everybody. This is just amazing. And I feel that's the most rewarding thing that um, uh, I I see myself uh, being part of. So we know from research and I think from watching it in our daughters and then the students and then the people that we work with that a thing that I think plagues a lot of women and young women is perfectionism and this idea that failure is final and absolute and that it's hard to get messy and bounce back from a failure. So I'm going to ask you what I think is a hard, intimidating question for a lot of people, because I think it's important for other women to hear us talk about them. Tell us about a big fail, (laughs) a big failure in your life um, that you have overcome. Yes, uh, failures are definitely part of the successes you get in the future. But I've had definitely way more failures and successes. But let me tell you about one that really kind of uh, made me feel that I shouldn't pursue what I'm pursuing anymore. So when I was first... um, tasked with selecting a topic in grad school, uh, the first topic that I selected for my dissertation was a total failure, Uh, but for good reason. And let me explain. I was trying to solve a problem that first needed other problems to be solved. And so I was tackling this huge problem in software traceability that uh, could definitely not be solved until several other things needed to be solved. So I wasn't making progress uh, as much as I should have been. And so... um, 
I decided at one point after talking with my advisor um, to change my topic and he uh, decided to support me in that. And I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today if I hadn't done that change. It was a risk because I spent two years working on it and then changed. So I could see it as a waste of two years. But what I saw it as uh, two years of learning how some projects probably don't pan out as well. And I could still use those skills in my new project. So that was a huge game changer for me because, you know, had I not done that, I would not be doing eye tracking today. So, um, and I also want to state that it's easy for us to say the problem is us, but the problem was not me in this case. Usually it isn't. It's usually you're doing something either too big of a scope or you're just not able to tackle it at that point in time. So that topic was not ready to be solved at that point. And that's why I was not able to make progress there. But it did get me down for a while because I thought it was me. But then I realized, you know, no, there were other factors that played into it. We are so glad that you persisted and stayed on your track. Would you now tell us about a big success that you've had in your career? Yes. Um, one of the things I've been working on since ever since I graduated was um, uh, a community infrastructure that I call iTrace. It's actually eye tracking infrastructure that um, lets people conduct eye tracking studies in software engineering um, in, in integrated development environments. It, it's a... Um, prototype that I started developing in 2011, uh, but we finally got funding for this infrastructure from the National Science Foundation five years later. So it took a while, but um, now uh, just looking uh, back, I see uh, the progress I've made. I, it didn't look like we were making progress as we were going through, but in 2021, in December, we are actually ready for the full release of the next version of our infrastructure, um, the second version. And so I'm extremely proud of this because it's not just built for us. It's also built for the community uh, and people are actually using this to conduct studies uh, at other institutions as well as um, outside of the U.S. So it's a multi-institutional um, effort that people are willing to even extend. So that's that to me was my biggest success. That is so cool to hear about. Benita, I think one of the coolest things about you in our community is how openly and loudly you use your voice for good. Can you tell us more about kind of what led you down that path and what our listeners should know about using their voice? Yes. So um, as women in STEM, it's very important to speak up. Don't be afraid to speak up. You know, when you have ideas, it's it's important for us to support other women. It's important for us to gather uh, support through informal channels. A lot of these happen in the corridors at you know, conferences, at uh, informal gatherings. And don't underestimate the power of these gatherings. They are very important to build connections. I like to be open to ideas. You know, you have to work hard. Yes, in our lab, we always say we work really hard, uh, but we also learn how, how to have fun. So I tell my students, you know, if I tell them one thing to take away from grad school, it's focus on your mental health or else you're going to burn out. And that's not what we want. We want you to be a productive citizen of society. And so I think just speaking about these things openly as a educator, as a researcher, I think students very much appreciate that because they are the whole person. They're not just a researcher, right? They also have 
we need to have work-life balance, not just for us, but also for them. So I try to make this conscious decision of you know, asking my students also to, to have this work-life balance and, and support them, not just in research, but also uh, in, in their mental health. Thank you so much for being with us here today, Benita, and helping us kick off these podcasts on behalf of Girls Code Lincoln and for all of your service to the organization as the treasurer and as a board member um, and everything that you do for our community here at the university and across the city of Lincoln and in Nebraska. Thank you. Thank you so much. We've been your hosts today, Elspeth Magilton and Akriti Agrawal. Girls Code Lincoln is a 501c3 nonprofit organization in Lincoln, Nebraska, where we strive to ignite passion for technology and leadership in young girls with the long-term goal of closing the gender gap in STEM. Learn more at girlscodelincoln.org. Want to hear more from women in coding? Tell your friends about this podcast and share it on social media. Word of mouth is our best advertising. Our research on Ada Lovelace was pulled from The New Yorker, Britannica.com, Biography.com, and ComputerHistory.org. And remember, friends, it's always okay to start your research on Wikipedia. Just never stop there or use it as a primary reference. Thanks to Girls Code Lincoln sponsors, including Fuse Coworking for our beautiful space, the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center at the University of Nebraska for Technical Services, and the Mentors Foundation, Woods Charitable Foundation, Huddle, Assurity, Emeritus, and Don't Panic Labs for their generous organizational support. <laughs>